When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you're interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Megan Miranda about The Only Survivors. Megan is the New York Times bestselling author of All the Missing Girls, The Perfect Stranger, The Last House Guest, a Reese Witherspoon book club pick, The Girl from Widow Hills, Such a Quiet Place, and The Last to Vanish. She has also written several books for young adults. She grew up in New Jersey, graduated from MIT, and lives in North Carolina with her husband and two children. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! And now for my read-alike request segment. While every book is unique and stands alone, certain elements of books we love really stick with us. While lots of websites use algorithms to try and recommend similar books, I rarely find that these recommendations make sense because they do not focus on what it is I liked about a particular book. That is what I want to tap into, the aspects of the book that appealed to the requester and to focus on finding those elements in other books. Today's request is from Rue of At Mama Loves a Library and she selected The White Girl by Toni Birch, one of my top reads of last year. The White Girl is set in the 1960s fictional Australian town of Dean. Odette Brown and her fair-skinned granddaughter, Sissy, live in the aboriginal section of the town, Quarrytown, and are subject to the restrictions placed on them by the welfare authorities. When a new policeman arrives, Odette realizes that Sissy is in danger of being taken away from her with absolutely no recourse on Odette's part, and she finds she must take action. 
Rue enjoyed the book because she liked Odette's tenacity and love for Sissy, as well as the straightforward prose which did not overshadow the story. She also liked learning about the challenges faced by Aboriginal people. I love that there are more and more books coming out written by people from Indigenous populations, and I'm going to focus on that aspect of Rue's request. My first recommendation is Better the Blood by Michael Bennett. Hannah Westerman is a tenacious Maori detective juggling single motherhood and the pressures of her career in Auckland's Central Investigation Branch. When she's led to a crime scene by a mysterious video, she discovers a man hanging in a secret room. As Hannah and her team work to track down the killer, other deaths lead her to think that they are searching for New Zealand's first serial killer. I think this is a fabulous read-alike for the white girl because Hannah is persistent like Odette, and both women are struggling within systems created for them by other people. In addition, Bennett highlights the struggles the Maori have faced in the past and continue to face today, much like Birch did for the Aboriginal people in Australia, while keeping his writing spare and concise. My next recommendation is Winter Counts by David Heskel Wombly Wyden, a fantastic mystery set on a Native American reservation in South Dakota. Winter Counts came out in 2020 and is the first book in a new mystery series starring Virgil Wounded Horse, a vigilante enforcer on the reservation, who is hired by those seeking justice when the American legal system or tribal council fails them. The second book is just now finally coming out this year and is entitled Wisdom Corner, and I am eager to read it. Similar to The White Girl, but focusing on a different Native population, Winter Counts focuses on what it means to be Native American today and the challenges faced by those trying to preserve their own cultural identity while also finding a place within their larger community. The last recommendation, as a read-alike for The White Girl, is a book that I just learned about last week at a book conference when I heard the author, Mona Gable, speak about the book. It is nonfiction and is entitled Searching for Savannah, the murder of one Native American woman and the violence against the many. In the summer of 2017, 22-year-old Savannah LaFontaine Greywind vanished. A week after she disappeared, police arrested the white couple who lived upstairs from Savannah and emerged from their apartment carrying an infant girl. The baby was Savannah's, but Savannah's body would not be found for days. With pathos and compassion, Searching for Savannah confronts this history of dehumanization toward indigenous women and the government's complicity in the crisis, as well as a decades-long struggle by Native American advocates for meaningful change. While it is nonfiction, Searching for Savannah provides a glimpse into an analogous situation, how Native Americans have struggled in the U.S. When I interviewed Tony Birch about the white girl for the podcast, he discussed the similarities and differences in how Native populations were treated in the U.S. and Australia. And reading this book after the white girl would reinforce his comparison and provide a lot of food for thought. Two more books about Indigenous populations that I have not read but I frequently see people posting about are Shudder by Ramona Emerson and Night of the Living Res by Morgan Tatey, which is a set of short stories. There is also a new mystery coming out in September by Vanessa Lilly about a Cherokee archaeologist who is looking for her missing sister. I am eagerly awaiting a galley for that one. Thanks, Rue, for submitting a read-alike request, and I hope you enjoy these recommendations. And now, on to my conversation with Megan Miranda. Welcome, Megan. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I am so glad you're here. You and I recorded a special Patreon episode with Wendy Walker not too long ago, and that was our first time to chat. And I'm looking forward for you to be back and to actually get to focus on the only survivors today. Oh, me too. It was so much fun to chat before. So I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. Me as well. 
So before we dive into questions, why don't you give me a quick synopsis about The Only Survivors? Sure. Um, So The Only Survivors is about a group of former classmates who are the sole survivors of a tragic accident that happened when they were seniors in high school. And ever since then, they've made a pact to get together during the week of the anniversary in order to keep one another safe, or so they say. There were nine of them at the start, and the book begins on the 10-year anniversary, and now they are down to seven, and another one has just gone missing. So it has thrown into question everything that's happened in the past and also in the present. How did you come up with the idea for this one? This is one of those weird situations where I can actually pinpoint the exact kind of moment that inspired the book. Usually it's kind of like I get ideas for characters and premises and things come together, but this is a very concrete moment. I had been on a family trip visiting my husband's family in Puerto Rico, and we had been walking on the beach and a phone washed up in the surf at my husband's feet. And he brought it inside. It it had its case on, but it was cracked and the phone wasn't working. And we brought it back with us to see if we could get it to work, left it out in the sun. And ultimately, it came back to life. And they tried to track down its owner. And they were very excited about this. And then the crime writer in me suddenly was like, hold on. What if this is like evidence of a crime and we have just turned on the phone and now people can track us with it? Um, And of course, this isn't what happened. It had a happy ending. The phone was reunited. But my brain went down this other path of, you know, what kind of group would have found a phone? How could the person who lost the phone and the group who found the phone be connected? And it veers in a totally different situation. But there is a scene near the start of the book where a phone washes up in the surf. And that was the inspiration point. I love that, that your mind is all worried about some kind of crime and people coming for you guys. Yes, yes. Apparently it's a useful skill when you're writing a thriller, but not so much like just existing in your daily life to imagine the worst case scenarios. Well, that was one of my questions for you was one, worst case scenario imagining, but also do you sometimes end up freaking yourself out? Like there are times when you can't sleep because you've imagined all these scary things and you're worried about them coming to life? I'd say it depends where I am in the book process because I'm not someone who does a lot of plotting. So when I start, it's like, yes, every possibility can exist. And my brain is kind of chasing these ideas down like every rabbit hole. Ultimately, near the end of the book, you know, hopefully I know what happens. And then as the writer, I feel more in control of the situation. But when at the early stages of the book, and especially when I'm doing the research, I will definitely freak myself out. And so it helps me to really compartmentalize where I am. I try to write in the same place every day and kind of leave my laptop behind at the end of the day and close my office door. Um, And that helps. But I I am like a chicken at heart. So um, maybe writing it is my way of trying to control it. Okay, that's a good way of looking at it because I'm a chicken at heart too. And I have to really stay away from super dark things, which yours aren't. But I could see where when you're writing your book and you're doing research, you're stumbling across all these awful things. I'm afraid I would just lay there at night going, oh my gosh. But compartmentalizing, it's a great way to handle it. And taking this as cathartic, you know, getting it out. Yes, yes. And, you know, I think there's a lot of mysteries in the world that, you know, don't have answers to them yet. And in these books, The process is, you know, finding that answer and getting that closure in a way that is cathartic. I like that. 
Well, the story is so atmospheric. The Outer Banks feels like a character in the story. Was that intentional? Yes. I I love writing setting and I love writing settings that are like very strongly tied to nature. Um, I have this long running joke with my editor where I'm always either setting a book in the woods or by the water. And for me, there are places that are both places that I love and find a lot of beauty and peace in. But I also think that any place can be either like the most beautiful or the most terrifying place. And it's really about your perspective and what's happening in those moments and kind of seeing how all those things that you love and that are beautiful can also then be turned in another way to look terrifying or or kind of work against you. And the Outer Banks is a place I love, but it's also a place that can become isolated um, very quickly, especially in bad weather. And so I, I really wanted to explore, you know, how this setting works in both ways. This house they've always gone to in the Outer Banks has been like a place of safety for them and retreat. And suddenly it starts to feel like a trap instead when things start to go terribly wrong. And in the past, they had their accident had occurred in water as well. It was a river. And so while there is this element of peace to being near a, an ocean, there's also these memories that are, are tied tightly to their past that they would like to forget. I like that idea of the focus on water and the woods because both are so peaceful but can quickly turn, as you mentioned. You know, you can get lost in the woods and never make your way out. You can get too far out in the water and have something happen if people don't see you or the tide is really pulling you back. I mean, there's many things that can happen. So they can be peaceful, but they can also be very dangerous. Yes. And I think a lot of it is is also out of your control. Like all the things that you love about these, you know, wilderness areas are also like they're what can be hidden there as well. You know, there are settings that are very much alive and, and feel like they have their own personalities. And humans almost always feel like they're invincible, and you definitely don't want to have that tactic when you're out in the water or in the woods. Right, exactly. So the pitch for the book, seven hours in the past, seven days in the present, seven survivors remaining. You play off the number seven in this one. How did that come about? Oh, this came about somewhat naturally. I... I'm someone who is very interested in structure and and the way stories are told. And a lot of times when I'm working my way into a story or a first draft, it's figuring out, okay, who is my narrator and what's the right way they would tell this story? And once I have that structure, it really helps me start to almost plot out how the story is going to unfold. And I knew this was going to be a reunion. And it was going to take place over the course of seven days. So so that helped me think of the structure of the present. And then I was thinking about this group of survivors. And I knew I wanted to have a piece from each of their perspectives between these chapters, between every day. And I had, I had about seven characters at that point. And I thought to myself, oh, okay, so each of them can have a voice between each of these seven days. And suddenly it all clicked that they were each going to tell their perspective of one of those hours in the past. And that was where it all kind of came together. And and when I did pitch the idea to my editor, that's sort of the pitch I gave too, was it's seven days in the present, it's seven hours in the past, and there are seven characters left. I am such a math nerd. I love numbers. 
So anything like that automatically draws me in. And I thought it was very clever. Thank you. I also love numbers and math. And when things click into place like that, it's very exciting for me as a writer too, where I can kind of see a structure overall, even if I don't know the whole story yet. I can see the pacing and lay out that framework. I'm always playing with numbers when I see the time. I try to figure out if they add up to each other or multiply or divide. I mean, I just constantly, anytime I see a group of numbers, I'm working on how they can relate to each other. So anytime I see something like this, I'm like, oh, that's so fun. And the number seven is one of those numbers that really stands out, I think, too. Yes, I love that. Was it hard to create distinct characters? You know, in my mind, so characters are are one of my favorite things to write and kind of I dive in and start writing and learn about them as I'm going with their interactions and conversations with one another. So in my mind, they felt very distinct, but I think bringing that those differences to life on the page was something I worked very hard at because you are introduced to all of them at once and it is a fairly large cast. So I think knowing what each of their roles is, like what they do for a living now and how their personality has changed from the past to the present allowed me to kind of have a a really strong grip on them from the start and to see them through Cassidy's perspective where she can kind of see who they were in the past and also in the present at the same time. I hadn't really thought about the fact that you really do introduce them almost all at once. And so that makes it really important to keep them distinct. Yes, yes. So you're a pantser, which I always find completely fascinating that a pantser can write a thriller. Let's talk about that. Yes. I, I will say that I'm jealous of all of my writer friends who can see an entire plot right from the start and kind of do the work on that up front and then um, spend maybe less time drafting. I just feel like I have to put a lot of extra time or I, I try to bank extra time in the editing process because I know I'm going to figure things out as I go and then have to go do a lot of revision as I'm writing. Do you find that that happens often? Because we talked a little bit about this in the conversation with Wendy. I think in the end, most authors put in the same amount of time. It's just where the time is put in. So do you find that you really do have to do a lot more editing because as you're writing, you're like, oh, wait a minute, Cassidy should do this or someone else should do this? I don't know, like you're saying, I don't know if it's extra time overall. I feel like it's more planning for things that don't go well, like realizing you get halfway through a book and then figure out something major that's going to change everything that happened. And that uncertainty of knowing whether you're going to need, you know, that extra time. So I really try now, when I started, it was very much I'm going in with, you know, very little information, and I'm going to write my way in and see what happens. And I really try now to make sure that even if I don't know, you know, the big who did it, when I start, I at least am seeing kind of a skeleton or a backbone of turning points um, and things that are going to be revealed. And a lot of times it's not things that are revealed in the present, but things that you're going to learn or the narrator is going to learn about the past. And that helps me create a little bit of an outline as I go. So maybe it's just a different type of outlining. Like it's less of a plot outline and more of a information reveal that that kind of gets me to the same place. But I totally agree. Like everyone gets to the same place at the end. It's whether you put the work into, you know, before you start drafting your first draft or your editing process. And then of course, there's always the situations where 
you think you have it all together and then you reach the end and it's not quite working um, and you still need to kind of go back and figure out what was the right way to tell the story. Let me, let me try that again. Do you feel like you have a pretty good finger on the pulse of what's happening and what the reader is going to perceive and all of that? Or do you often get to the point where your editor reads it and the editor is like, there's too much information here, not enough information here? Because I'm sure you're living in the story and I would think sometimes it would be hard to be impartial. Yes, it, it is hard for me to be impartial because as soon as I figure something out as the author and the writer and like know what happened, I feel like as I'm placing those hints or clues in, I feel like it's so obvious and that everyone's going to see it. So I usually, you know, try to pull back, but somebody who's just reading and maybe reading quickly is missing those smaller details and then the end or or the reveals seem to come out of nowhere. And so finding that line that you're walking where it's you know, both a surprise, but also the pieces are there and obvious and they make sense in hindsight is something that does come in the revision process for me. And usually it's it's super helpful to have both my editor and agent's feedback and some of my writing friends as well. But usually I'm usually adding more details in in my revision because to me, I'm like, oh, I've given it all away on page 15 when I said that one line. I know that would be me. Because I would be worried once I knew that everybody is going to just see this big red flag or the big clue with the arrows going, and then my editor would read it and be like, I don't understand. (laughs) So I know it's hard once you know. Yes. And I think that is why maybe I like going in and not knowing. Like I like writing from that perspective of the main character who's not sure, and I'm not sure. And so I can kind of channel that uncertainty and suspicion towards everyone in a way that is authentic because I'm not sure when I'm starting exactly how this is going to come together. And then, yeah, switches once you realize it. And then I'm like, oh no, I'm being so obvious. I've given it all away. Yes. So in your regular life, do you just pay attention to everything that's happening around you thinking this could be a story? I don't think I'm actively usually thinking that, but I do think I get inspiration from everywhere in very small ways a lot of times. I mean, it could be just just setting things or like, I mean, this is this is a, such a small thing, but when I was writing The Last to Vanish, there we were having like there were squirrels right outside like trying to get into our gutters and our house and like that definitely made it into the first scenes of The Last to Vanish because I was hearing them as I was writing those first scenes. And so I think all little things like that kind of inspire, um, whether it's setting, whether it's, you know, a bigger thing like a phone washing up um, that suddenly becomes a bigger story. But I don't actively think to myself usually, well, this is a story I'm going to write down and, and see what happens. It more just inspires like a piece of something, I think, going forward. And do you just store all those things in your mind and realize, okay, I'm now done with the only survivors. I need to start from scratch again. What things have happened that I think would be a good idea? Or do you make notes or do you just kind of think each time, okay, I'm starting over? For little things, I I don't really make notes about them. I, I feel like if something has lived in my mind long enough that I'm still thinking about it by the time the next you know book is starting, then there's something there. And usually by the time I get to my next, like I finish The Only Survivors, at that point, I usually 
have the next idea already kind of percolating in the back of my mind or like pieces coming together. And so while I'm working on the draft, like while I was working on Only Survivors, I was jotting down notes or little lines here and there that I was going to come back to for my next book, but I didn't really actively give it a lot of thought until I finished the one book. I try to stay as focused in the headspace of of one character at a time. But I do I do write down notes. I would not say it's enough to suddenly have like a pitch for a new idea though. I could see where that would be hard though because you want to make sure you're ready to go for the next one, but as you said, you want to stay in the headspace of the current book. Yes. Yes. So you write standalones. Have you ever thought about revisiting any of the characters from your previous books? That's a great question because I do think about some characters like years later and, you know, I wonder how they're doing and I hope they're doing well. I wrote one companion novel back when I started in young adult. My first book I wrote a companion to two years later and it was from a different character's point of view and it was set like nine months after the first book had happened. And I I enjoyed that because it was a way to kind of revisit the same characters, but not be bound to that same story arc. But I really, I really like, like I said, characters are one of my favorite things. I love kind of starting fresh with a group of people and figuring out who they are and what their relationships are like and what their story is going to be. And because I write thrillers, like I usually see a character arc before a plot arc. And I I like to imagine that the characters at the end of this, you know, very difficult story, they they make it through and they're doing okay. And if I am going to put them back in another thriller, like terrible things are going to have to happen to them again. So that is kind of my way of of thinking like I'm I'm doing them a favor by not kind of throwing them back into another thriller world. But I won't say never, but it's it's not really where my mind goes to first. And it's not really, I haven't been actively thinking about like a story for these characters. It's more just, I think about the characters and hope they're doing okay. I just didn't know if there was one character that just really stays with you and you think, you know what, I'd like to write about him or her again. But your point is very valid. How many thriller situations can one person go through? Right. And and I don't write characters who are, you know, in law enforcement, um, which, you know, I love reading those types of stories, but it's not a character who would necessarily find themselves involved in, you know, a mystery or a new investigation repeatedly. Exactly. I was just curious if there was one or two that you thought, oh, I really could use them again, but I hadn't thought of the flip side of that. So what's interesting is I've never taken someone like from a book I wrote and use them again in another book. But I did have a character who was in a draft of an earlier book of mine who did not make the final cut, who then um, made it into this book, The Only Survivors. So that was kind of fun to be like, oh, I do have, you know, you are going to have a role. It just wasn't in the story I originally had him in. Okay. I love that. And you had to love it because you'd probably spent all this time creating that character and now you had a use for him. Yes, yes. It was it was very exciting to be able to to pull kind of the bones of that character. There's some differences, but he has the same first name and he has kind of the same personality and bring that into this book. That's so interesting. Yeah. What was the highlight of writing The Only Survivors? Ooh, 
You know, the highlight for me when I'm writing is is always that moment when the pieces suddenly click into place. And that doesn't always happen early on in a book. So for me, there was this moment when I, I suddenly understood you know, each of the characters um, you learn a little bit more about in the sections between each day that are from that are from the past and realizing like the entirety of what had happened in the past and how that created who these characters become, that moment when it all clicked together was just really satisfying and exciting for me. That has to be because as we were talking earlier about being a pantser, so you're not plotting it all out ahead of time. When you finally realize, okay, this is where it's coming together. This is why they did what they did. This is what happened. Has to feel so good. Yes. It's also a relief because sometimes you get really far into a book and you're like, oh man, I really hope this is all going to come together. Exactly. And you haven't wasted all this time writing these pages that you can't use. Right. Exactly. Which character did you enjoy writing the most and which one the least? Ooh, so I I always feel most connected to the main character, the narrator, because I spend so much time in her headspace. So Cassidy was, you know, obviously the character that I felt most connected to as I was writing. She was also a way in for me to the story because even though all of these characters went to school together, they were not all friends. And Cassidy wasn't really friends with any of them beforehand. Um, she knew of them. She knew some of them better than others. So she has this kind of unique perspective of, of being a little bit of the outsider of the group, but also, you know, really inside everything that had happened to them and bound them together. So she was a, a great way for me to be able to connect and see these characters on that level. I loved writing those snippets from the past for each of the characters. I really, I can't say there's any that I didn't enjoy because I feel like I've never done that before where I've written from other characters' perspectives or about other characters from that perspective. And it just was a way for me to really explore more about what brought them to this moment. So there were, there's none that I'd say I did not enjoy writing. I mean, obviously there's characters that I liked more than others. And I think that's because Cassidy liked some more than others, but I really enjoyed writing all of them. I guess a better way to phrase it was who was the hardest? Ooh, okay. Who was the hardest? I'd say the hardest to write. Well, Josh was the character that I had brought in from another book. So he was not hard for me to write because I felt like I knew his personality from the start. I'd say that Grace was maybe the hardest for me to write, especially because of where her part was coming in in the story. But I, I enjoyed writing it, but she was probably the hardest. And that's so interesting that you hadn't written from various characters' perspectives like you did in this book, and you enjoyed doing that. Do you think you'll do it again? Yeah, I might. I feel like every book, it kind of, like, the the story kind of informs a little bit of the structure. And so because I've written one of my books in Young Adult was Two Points of View. So I had done that, but they were both in first person. And these pieces of the past are all in third person. That was my first time pretty much ever writing anything in third person. So yeah, I think I, I might do it again if the book calls for it. Makes sense. 
Well, that cover, I just love it. Do you love it? I do love it. I I saw it. I opened up the email and I was like, it's perfect. I had visited the Outer Banks um, when I was writing this book and I had taken pictures while I was there. And I mean, this felt like like the scene was pretty much coming to life. It was really, really cool to see. The colors are just stunning. Yes. Yes. It looks like it could be either a sunset or a storm coming. Like it can be beautiful and ominous at the same time, which I feel like captures the tone perfectly. Exactly. And it's just so funny. Every time we say Outer Banks, my son is the hugest fan of that television show. And I just keep thinking back to that. You need to like co-market with it. Right. I know. (laughs) That was probably a different demographic. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what are some books that you've read recently that you really liked? So some books I've read recently. So one of the joys of, of being a writer is getting early looks at some books that are not out yet. So the two books I read most recently are coming out in the next year, and they're both fantastic. Blood Sisters by Vanessa Lilly and First Lie Wins by Ashley Elston. They're both, you know, riveting, edge of your seat, surprises, dive deep into character, which is you know one of my favorite things. And I'm currently listening to Counterfeit by Kristen Chen, and I'm loving that too. I have not heard of the first two, so I can't wait to go look them up. Oh, good. I think Vanessa's comes out in September. Ashley Elston's, I believe, will be in next January. Got it. So that's probably why I haven't seen them yet. Yes, I'm getting early, early reads. But that's great. I love getting those on my radar. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, Megan, I'm so glad we got to chat again. And thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I loved talking with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I really appreciate it. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.